hey, we're going to be talking a lot about sexual violence in this series. There's also some language. If either of those things are upsetting for you, please take care while you're listening. It was a Friday in March 2015. It was cold outside. And Amber Gutierrez found herself on a corner in Lower Manhattan, breaking down. Amber was 22. She didn't speak much English. She's a Filipina-Italian model, and she'd just moved to the United States about a month before to pursue her career. And I was on the street, and I, I just started crying. And uh, in my head, I was like, oh my god, like, why is this happening? Amber pulled out her phone and called her agent, and told him she had just been assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. She said that he groped her and put his hand up her skirt during a meeting at his office. I just felt that I needed to go to the police, so I told him to take me there. Ambra didn't know much about Weinstein. She didn't have much reason to. She was a model, not an actress. She never even had an interest in acting. And so when she went to the police that day, she also didn't know that Weinstein had been trailed by rumors of sexual harassment and assault for years. He's denied all allegations of non-consensual sex. We went to the, that station, and when I talked to the, the police guy, I said that this person assaulted me. He answered, again? And I don't know why, but that again just made me feel like burning inside. I don't know, in Italy we say boiling the blood. Because you suspected this was a guy who was doing this in a serial way. Yeah. And then, while Ambra was sitting with the NYPD's Special Victims Division, giving a detailed report of what had happened, she got a call on her cell phone. It was Weinstein. Amber, I'm very mad at you. Where are you? Weinstein didn't know Ambra was with the police. He was calling because he was annoyed with her. Apparently, at the meeting where she alleges he assaulted her, He'd told her he was going to hold tickets for her at a production of Finding Neverland, a Broadway show he was producing. Ambra, however, didn't show up. They're very expensive tickets. I said, um, sorry, I didn't feel so good. You know, women's problems, something like that. So here's Ambra, sitting in the police station, in the middle of reporting this guy. And now she has him on the phone. I asked him, like, so how do they feel? They being her breasts. And he said, oh, you're, you're great there. They feel great. They're, they're amazing. Like, it was admitting. Ambra says Weinstein seemed placated. He offered to send her tickets to Finding Neverland for the next day. And then they ended the call. And so I thought, that's it. They heard it. I was saying the truth. <laughs> she thought maybe the police would take a statement ask a few more questions, and then go get him. But that's not what happened. Instead, they asked me, Ambra, could you do something for us? And I said, yeah, absolutely. They said, um, would you want to meet them tomorrow and wear a wire? This is the Catch and Kill podcast. I'm Ronan Farrow. We've focused a lot on powerful people in this series. The tactics they can deploy to intimidate people, the sway they hold over the media. Today we're going to look at the other side of the equation. 
what it's like to be someone with no status, no wealth, few connections, trying to bring a powerful person to justice. Like when a 22-year-old model, who barely speaks any English, facilitates a literal undercover sting operation, trying to hold one of the most influential people in Hollywood accountable. The night before the sting, Ambra says she couldn't sleep. She was just hours away from re-engaging with the man who had assaulted her the day before. And yet, while she was lying there awake, turning over this decision to help the police, there was one word that kept coming back to her, something the police had said the day before. Again? I don't know, I kept repeating in my mind that again. I don't know, that gave me strength to do everything, I think. Mm -hmm. I didn't want that to happen anymore to anyone. The next afternoon, the police hid the wire under Amber's clothes. She went to see Finding Neverland, and then she met Weinstein at the bar of the Tribeca Grand Hotel. And the police were sitting. there undercover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were sitting around. How many I, officers? I think 10. I recognized two or three. So did you feel safe? Oh yeah, I felt safe. And they told me that if I was feeling uncomfortable to just say that you were going to the restroom. Weinstein and Ambra stayed at the bar for a while. He told her how much he could do to help her career. He was saying names of actresses that he helped, giving me so many compliments. And if I would listen to him, I would become even greater <laughs> than them. And what's going through your head as you're listening to him do this? I don't know. I was laughing inside my head. <laughs> I was thinking how he could even think that I would believe those things. Ember is pretty savvy about these things. Some of that is just who she is, and some of it came from experiences in a different country with a different powerful man. Ambra was born Ambra Batalana in Turin, Italy, in the early 90s. Her family was working class. She was close with her mom, but her strongest relationship was with her little brother, Claudio. My brother, of course, was little. He was three years younger, so we were playing a lot of video games. What did you play? <laughs> yeah, Mario Karts and Playstations. There is this little dragon that I don't remember. Spyro, Spyro. the dragon. Oh, I yeah. Loved it. <laughs> so I remember, like, we were trying to go to sleep and then instead turning on the TV and play all night. <laughs> Ambra says her father could be violent. She called him Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. She says sometimes he beat her mom. And when Ambra tried to intervene and protect her, sometimes she'd get hurt, too. Eventually, her father left. And Ambra needed to find a way to support the family. That's when she decided to try modeling. When I was 18, I joined this beauty contest called Miss Italy. She was a finalist for Miss Italy in 2010. She was on TV and got a lot of attention. Not all of it wanted. I was noticed by bad people that tried to take advantage of playing on my dreams, taking me to the house of the prime minister at the time. Silvio Berlusconi, the now former prime minister of Italy, who controlled and influenced a whole swath of the Italian media, including the media that aired her pageant. Ambra's agent brought her to what she was told would be a work function, Turns out, it was one of these wild bacchanals that Berlusconi threw at his mansion outside of Milan. The press called them bunga bunga parties, basically sex parties. And what I saw was women that work in TV, 
doing erotic dances and being naked. Ambra says she was groped repeatedly by Berlusconi. The 30 or so women there were asked to perform degrading sex acts, like kissing a statue of an erect penis. And these parties, they sometimes involved underage girls. After two hours, Ambra and her friend demanded to leave. On their way out, one of Berlusconi's associates told them, you can forget about your careers. Back at the hotel bar in Tribeca, Ambra was still wearing the wire. She was trying to steer the conversation towards some kind of confession. Weinstein went on about what he could do for her career, but the assault didn't come up. They finished their drinks. Then he said, okay, um, I need to get ready for this event. I'm going to take a shower and just come with me. Just come with me. And I was like, why do I have to come with you (laughs) if you're taking a shower? But I was playing dumb. She and the undercover police surrounding her had been waiting for Weinstein to escalate things. She said she'd follow him upstairs. Be like, okay. Um, I left my jacket there, and I followed him. Are you now a little bit more nervous because you're separated from the police? I am. I'm super nervous. And in the middle of the hallway, I said, oh, uh, I forgot my jacket. It's downstairs. And this was something the police had told you to do if you got in a situation no, where you needed that's to get out. something I thought of. It's something you came up with. <laughs> yeah, because my mom always told me, like, always pay attention, be careful, like, you're a woman. In any situation, I had to have an escape plan, always. They went downstairs to get the jacket. As she walked to the bar, she scanned the room, trying to catch the eye of one of the undercover cops. I took my jacket, and I'm watching the police, and I'm like, Someone follow me. Weinstein directed Ambra back upstairs to the second floor. And then again in the hallway, almost close to the room, I finally hear someone say, Hi, Mr. Weinstein. Uh, this is blah 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 from TMZ. Who is this lady? It was one of the undercover cops, posing as a TMZ reporter. Weinstein tried to get him to leave, but the cop wouldn't budge. He just kept asking questions, trying to keep the two of them from going to a hotel room. Weinstein went and complained to the hotel staff, who pointed him and Ambra to a more private entrance and eventually to a service elevator. Weinstein pressed the button for the penthouse. And Ambra had a problem. I couldn't text the police. My phone was not working. I was trying to keep calm, and I knew that I could have just got out of there. I was starting to to get very nervous. As the numbers on the elevator ticked higher and higher, so did the potential for something to go wrong. Ambra was getting farther away from the police. Her phone wasn't working. And the pacified Weinstein, the one who'd seemed so interested in helping her career, had now become more insistent, more overbearing. And he starts saying, get into the room. I said, um, no, I'm sorry, I don't feel comfortable with that. What do we have to do here? Nothing. I'm going to take a shower. You sit there. And he's like, I'm just going to take a shower. You just sit there five minutes. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't want to get in there. He's like, I'm not going to do anything to you. I'm sorry, I, I cannot. No, yesterday was a kind of aggressive for I, me. I, I, I need to know a person to I be won't touched. do a thing. I don't want to do a thing, please. I swear I won't. Just sit with me. Don't embarrass me in the hotel. I'm here all the time. And he kept saying, I'm not going to do anything to you. I swear. I swear it on his children's. Please, I'm not going to do anything. I swear my children. Please come in. 
What did you think when he said that? I swear on my children. I don't know, it made me feel a little disgusted. One minute. No, I can't. Go to the bathroom. Please, I don't want to do something I don't want to. Go to the bathroom. Come here, listen to me. Well, and then he got angry. He's, he threatens you. Don't ruin your uh, friendship with me or things like that. It was like slamming his hand on the door, being very nervous about the fact that I would not listen. The anger turned into almost desperation. I'm begging you, he said, please come in. I'm not going to do anything. I'm a famous guy. Ambra, still wearing the wire, asked him a question. Oh, why did you touch my breast? Yeah, I remember those words a lot. Why did you say you touched my breast? Oh, please, I'm sorry. Just come on. I'm used to that. Come on. Are you used to that? Yes, come in. No, but I'm not used to that. I won't do it again. Come on. Sit here. She'd gotten it. She'd gotten what amounted to a confession. Weinstein didn't know Amber was recording, but it was obvious she wasn't going to comply with his requests. And in that moment, she'd become a liability. He followed her downstairs and returned to the bar. Weinstein was trying to keep her calm. He asked if they could have coffee. But Amber's job was done. She was scared, exhausted. She walked away from him and into a bathroom where she met two police officers. And I said, that's it, I can't do it anymore. They snuck her out of the building and into a car. She was rattled but they reassured her. They were like, Amber, you were great. You got it. You, you stopped with Monster. After the break, Harvey Weinstein fights back, and Ambra's past comes back to haunt her. Welcome back. The afternoon of the sting, shortly after Amber left the hotel, detectives went and found Weinstein. He voluntarily followed them to an NYPD precinct where he was questioned, before eventually requesting a lawyer. He was let go that night. The matter was now in the hands of the district attorney, Cyrus Vance Jr. Amber met with the head of the DA's sex crimes unit, Martha Bashford, for questioning. So I was with my lawyer at his office, the DA met me and uh, started to ask me questions. And they asked questions like, so what happened in Italy? Ambra had expected questions about Weinstein, not about her past. And the questions got more confusing. Were you a prostitute? Did you ever got gifts from people? And I was like, did you hear the recording? Two law enforcement sources told me Bashford grilled Ambra about Berlusconi and her personal sexual history. One even said Bashford was acting like one of Weinstein's personal defense attorneys. The DA's office has said that this was all part of a typical interview, meant to prepare a witness for what could happen at trial. Ambra and those law enforcement sources saw it differently. I understood what was happening, but I couldn't believe it was actually going that way. And what was happening, in your view? This person was against me. This situation, trying to report criminal activity and getting smeared as a prostitute instead, Ambra had faced this before, too. Back in 2010, the Berlusconi parties became public knowledge in Italy. Ambra provided a police statement 
and eventually agreed to testify against the prime minister on charges that he'd paid for sex with a minor. At the time, Amber was in her senior year of high school and mostly riding high from being a finalist for Miss Italy. When I got back home, I remember all my friends being so happy to, you know, I've seen me on TV. And uh, they were saying, oh, I voted for you and all these beautiful things for a few months. And then the next January in 2011, I opened up this newspaper and my name, my friend's name, and our photos were in it saying that um, we're beauty queens um, doing prostitutions in like this party of Berlusconi. Berlusconi had made a lot of his money as a media mogul. He was worth about $8 billion. In 2009, Forbes listed him as the 12th most powerful person in the world. At the time, according to The Guardian, he controlled or influenced six of Italy's seven major TV networks. And the government, which he ran, also provided subsidies to most of the newspapers in the country, which many argue made the press less critical of the prime minister. This is what Ombra was up against when the Italian media picked up her story. I had paparazzi coming at school. I had people not talking to me anymore. My life just fell down <laughs> completely. But there wasn't much she could do at that point. So of course I felt helpless. They could have write anything about me. And I always had that feeling of you're too little to try to change your life, to change the situation. She felt like her reputation was wrecked in Italy. So she left for London, then Paris, then the US. She dropped her given name, Batalana, and started going by her mother's name, Gutierrez. She figured with a new country and a new name, maybe it would be a fresh start. Back in 2015, after meeting with the Manhattan DA's office, Ambra simply had to wait. So I get out of that meeting and I was waiting for something to happen. I was waiting for someone to call me, to tell me anything. Weinstein's lawyers, meanwhile, hired a private intelligence firm called K2 to keep Manhattan DA Cyrus Vance Jr. from pressing charges. The firm dug up clips from the Italian press about the Berlusconi scandal, clips that made Ambra out to be an illicit sex worker. And then current and former K2 employees, all of whom had previously worked at the DA's office, relayed the information smearing Gutierrez in calls to prosecutors. Weinstein's lawyers also presented a dossier in face-to-face meetings, and also had their own close connections to the Manhattan DA's office. One lawyer had donated more than $26,000 to Vance's campaigns since 2008. And just like in Italy, the claims about her found their way into American tabloids. Tabloids Weinstein had close ties to. There was an other articles coming out on how I could have been blackmailing him or trying to become famous and make money. Right, suddenly the press started to turn yes. against you. <laughs> and there were all my bikini photos on the first page of the newspapers um, trying to make me look like I was an hustler or something like that. Yeah. They were trying to smear me. After two weeks, the DA announced it would not be pressing charges against Weinstein. What went through your mind when you saw that? 
game over. <laughs> The following weeks were tough for Umbra. The tabloid items kept coming, and work opportunities stopped coming. I was afraid of wearing a skirt. Like, I was covering myself because I thought that maybe it was me, that I was in the wrong side because I like high heels and skirts and dresses. And your reputation was Getting spiraling. completely. Like, I was losing everything again. And then I had got an email from my lawyer where Harvey wanted to stipulate a contract to help me out in the situation, let's say. Weinstein was proposing a non-disclosure agreement. For a large sum of money, Ambra would agree to never speak of the incident to anyone ever again. And I told him, no, I, I don't want anything from you. Like, I don't want money. And he started with... I think $300,000. And I said, I don't care. <laughs> this is not what I want. And again, another day passed by and he went up to 500000 And again, I said, I'm sorry. Like, this is not what I want. And then at the last time that he tried to offer me the million dollar, um, I remember that day because it was the most scary that I could remember because my brother called me. He started saying that someone went to where he worked asking about me. Ambra's brother, Claudio, the one she'd grown up playing video games with all night, the person in the world she most wanted to protect. He was living in Italy at the time, and the press, in the best case scenario, this was just the press, had found him too. It freaked her out. So in my mind, I started to think of every worst possible situation. I couldn't put anyone of my family in risk. And I answered back to my lawyer. And that's it. I decided to, to accept. On April 20th, 2015, a few weeks after the alleged assault, Ambra sat in an office in midtown Manhattan with an 18-page NDA in front of her. One of Weinstein's attorneys sat opposite her. He looked super nervous. He was so nervous. He was there acting like, I'm here, but I'm sorry that I'm here, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, I signed, and that's it. What was going through your mind when you signed that document? I was feeling bad. I didn't like it. As part of the agreement, she was required to hand over all of her technology to another investigative agency, Kroll, also hired by Weinstein. Kroll collected all of Ambra's computers and phones. She had to give them passwords to all of her email accounts, and they combed through the accounts to clear them of any evidence of the Weinstein incident. Then they gave all the devices back empty. Because there were no charges, None of the evidence the police collected was a matter of public record. No one outside law enforcement knew there had been a tape. It was as if nothing had ever happened. Umbra slipped into a long period of depression. She couldn't get any work. She developed an eating disorder. I didn't leave my bed. 
I remember like my mom had to to bath me to to take care of me because I was just there in bed sleeping trying to think it was a dream. She lived in the Philippines and Italy for the next two years, trying to put it all behind her. Then, in early 2017, she took a trip to New York City. While she was there, she got a call from her lawyer. A reporter had called, asking if she'd talk. Suddenly, my lawyer called me. And he's like, someone would want to meet you for and um, asking you about 2015. And I'm like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, but you cannot talk and disclose anything about it. At that moment, I was in the thick of my Weinstein reporting at NBC. I'd read the initial tabloid coverage of Amber's story. I'd heard there was a sting. And I'd wondered what had happened to her and to the evidence. I called Amber's lawyer, who sounded worried and said he wasn't at liberty to talk. But then, to my surprise, I got a text from her, and then a call. Hello, Uh, this is Amber. I would like to meet you. (laughs) Tell me when. We met for the first time at a Manhattan restaurant. She was sitting in the back. She seemed anxious. You were putting a lot on the line. The contract stipulated that you might get wiped out financially if it was discovered that you were talking to someone. What made you decide to talk to me anyway? The moment I signed, I thought of that daughter, mother, sister, that maybe would have just went through what I've been. I was really thinking, like, this is it. Like, after two years, I waited for this moment. I remember Ambra taking a deep breath and then showing me the million-dollar settlement signed by Harvey Weinstein. After that, we kept talking. Yeah, I, I, I met up with uh, the source again, which is always surreal. Today she was coming from a, like a Garnier shampoo commercial audition. That's a call I placed to my producer at NBC, Rich McHugh, right after one of my meetings kind of, with Amber. You know, I'm trying to be sober about the risks. I'm kind of trying to say, well, look, you should probably seek legal advice. And I- but I was also pressing her to reveal more. And gradually, she did. She told me about the sting, about the wire. I put in a lot of calls to the DA's office, trying to see if a recording had survived. A source there told me they literally couldn't find it. More on that later. It's interesting. She's really fired up about it. Like, she just kept saying, like, it it feels like the universe has aligned in a way where the timing is right for me to talk about this. Turns out, Ambra was sitting on something even bigger than the contract. She didn't have a recording from the wire, but throughout the sting... While she was wearing the wire, Ambra was also recording a backup on her cell phone. The first thing that I did after that police operation, I sent my recordings to five different emails that I had. (laughs) Remember that Kroll, the cybersecurity firm Weinstein hired to enforce Ambra's NDA, had asked for all of her passwords and scoured all of her devices and email accounts to make sure any copies of the recording were destroyed. And Ambra had said she'd complied. But there was one password she didn't give up right away. And I said, sorry, I don't remember the last one. I'm, I'm going to figure it out. Is, is an Italian account. Of course. Right, you were still playing dumb. Well. <laughs> that night, she borrowed a friend's computer. I opened up my, my email, and I saw the recordings. 
she transferred the attached recordings to her friend's desktop. And then I called my lawyer and I said, oh, I remember the password. He said, okay, yeah, I'm gonna send it over. And uh, I was there in front of the computer waiting. I waited maybe two hours after that call. Please, <laughs> just make this work. You thought that Kroll was going to discover that you had secretly downloaded yeah. these copies. <gasps> of course. <laughs> the next day, Ambra's lawyer finally called and said she could come pick up her computer and other devices. And I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> so I went back there, took my phone, my computer, my other stuff. And then I said, so now I can change the passwords of all my emails, right? Yeah, 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 sure. Just do whatever. And he's like, you don't have any copy, right? And I said, no, I don't have any copy, like, impossible. And so, a few days later, when Ambra met with Weinstein's lawyers and signed that NDA... I knew I had the recordings. <laughs> For weeks, I pressed Ambra to give me the audio. I would have wanted to give you those recordings, and of course, they didn't want to make trace of where it was coming from. And then I said, well, what if we just record the recording? Record the recording. <laughs> and it allowed me to say, she never transferred any files to me. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> there was just one problem. I finally got a tentative yes out of her. And she got out the old laptop okay. where she'd kept I'll the files. It. And then I said, great, let's, let's get the computer out. And I remember you saying, oh, there's a problem. Speaker don't work. The speakers don't work. <laughs> so you run out of the restaurant to get a speaker. What was going through your mind as I sprinted across town to a Best Buy to, to get speakers? I was, um, I had that like heavy weight that I had inside releasing little by little. Later, in fact checking calls with Weinstein and his lawyers, when we told them we had a copy of the recording, Weinstein was shocked. The recording that was destroyed by the district attorney, he said. Both Weinstein and his representatives claimed they had struck a deal with the DA to have the recording destroyed. District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr.'s office denies this and says they would never agree to destroy evidence. Here's what I want to say about this recording. A lot of people hear it and they come away talking about Harvey Weinstein, this middle-aged mogul who holds all the cards bullying a terrified 22-year-old model. Please sit there. Please. One minute. No, I, ask I can't. You, go to the bathroom. Please, I don't want to do something I don't want go to. Go to the But once I understood Ambra's story, I realized there's another way to listen to it. Another way to understand the power dynamic that played out in that hotel. Because in standing her ground, in showing this incredible degree of savvy and determination, Ambra Gutierrez became the one with the power. When the guy comes with my jacket, Why you yesterday you touch my priest? Oh, please, I'm sorry. Just come on. I'm used to that. But come on. Are you used to that? Yes, come in. You're no, but I'm not used to that. I won't do it again. Come on. See? Ambra didn't just hand over the tape that spring. She also agreed to be named in the story and to cooperate with as many lawyers and fact-checkers as it took to get it over the finish line. I was always there. I was always ready to, to do everything. NBC ultimately declined to air the tape, or any part of the Weinstein reporting. You can hear how that happened in the previous episode. 
The network has maintained that there were no named sources in the story. What do you make of it when NBC executives say there were never any women willing to put their name on the story? I just want them to look at themselves in the mirror right now and um, ask if they could have been a change for this world or the shame for it. So I played the tape for David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, and he greenlit the story. That October, I published the first in a series of articles exposing Weinstein and telling Ambra's story. And I released my recording of her recording. What was it like to finally see the recording go public? Like, extreme happiness. The freedom that maybe a person could feel after being in jail. It was just being born again. Now you know Harvey Weinstein in this time frame was on a mission to send spies after Rose McGowan and some yeah. of these other women. And it seems like he never really devoted much attention to you. Not at all. No I played one, very well. <laughs> right. No one thought that you would ever fight back. People really miscalculated underestimating you. It was perfect. They would never thought I had those recordings. I'm from nowhere. I'm nothing. Who am I? I have no power. I'm a model. <laughs> The Catch and Kill podcast is a production of Pineapple Street Studios. It was produced by me, Ronan Farrow, with Sophie Bridges, Sharina Ong, Janelle Pfeiffer, Unjin Lee, and Laura Dodd. Our senior producer is Eric Menel. Editing by Joel Lovell. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. Production help from Emily Becker, Maddie Sprung-Kaiser, Noor Ibrahim, and Alex Petroskovich. Backchecking by Sean Lavery. Music in the episode from Blue Dot Sessions, Marmoset, and Firstcom. Next week, how the kind of non-disclosure agreement that silenced Ambra Gutierrez for a few years silenced others for decades. Like one former assistant whose experiences working for Harvey Weinstein started with a really weird job interview. She was very clear in her interview that Harvey was very difficult to deal with. So uh, she took pains to explain that I was to handle him robustly. You didn't know when he was going to lose his temper. There would be requests for massages and inappropriate talk. And so I think so all of us So she said that explicitly, that, that there be... was going to be some kind of a sexual component to this difficulty. Right. This all, of course, is based on reporting I did for my book, Catch and Kill, which is available wherever you buy books. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. You're 22. Your English was still brand new. I learned myself through cartoons and karaoke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, I love Adele. Um, Do you have a, a favorite go-to Adele song for karaoke? Uh, Rolling in the Deep. Okay, that's solid. <laughs> Someone like you is, pr is pretty Someone good karaoke like you, material, yes, too. But it makes me think of my ex when I was 18. So. It's a little sad. <laughs> yeah. One definitely, uh, after enough drinks, will, yeah, yeah, will yeah. cry all, during a karaoke yeah. session. Or with. there's also chasing pavements that are...